Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. I'm your host, Tom Schult, from the University of British Columbia. As Paul Whitfield Horn, Professor of Literature and Science at Texas Tech University, Bruce Clark has spent the last decade plus publishing groundbreaking scholarship, introducing the application of second-order systems theory to the analysis of literature and media more broadly. The staggering scope of Clark's multidisciplinary erudition is on full display in the monograph Neo-Cybernetics and Narrative, out from University of Minnesota Press in 2014. In picking up Nicholas Luhmann's neologism Neo-Cybernetics in place of a more standard second-order cybernetic label, Clark carves out a theoretical continuum for his thinking that runs along a trajectory from Heinz von Furster's notions of the observer through George Spencer Brown's Laws of Form, Maturana and Varela's Biology of Cognition, and right up to and including Nicholas Luhmann's controversial extension of autopoiesis theory to metabiotic social systems, a theoretical move most often excluded from more orthodox second-order cybernetic thinking. The formidable theoretical apparatus he has assembled allows Clark to frame the reader of literary texts as an observer of semantic structures facilitating the psychic construction of possible worlds of meaning, and to examine literary texts themselves as forms of communicative action that continue the autopoiesis of meaning-constituted social systems along the lines of Lumen's tripartite process of information, utterance, and understanding. From this launchpad, Clark takes us on a stratospheric ride with stops on a variety of fascinating landscapes, including the media theory of Friedrich Kittler, the socio-technical explorations of Bruno Latour, and encounters with artistic works as diverse as Virginia Woolf's iconic modernist novel, Mrs. Dalloway, and James Cameron's quasi-Guyan special effects blockbuster motion picture, Avatar. As a result, Clark has given arts and humanities scholars an entirely new set of tools with which to think about artistic production, reception, and mediation. And so now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Bruce Clark. Bruce Clark, it is such a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thanks so much for making time to join us. My pleasure. So um, can we start in our traditional way, just asking you to tell us a little bit about your uh, intellectual biography or any part of your biography that you think is uh, something you wish to share with us? I know it's a particularly colorful one, but I'll leave it up to you to decide what to leave in and what to what to exclude. Well, <laughs> uh, I'll... Uh... I'll start with graduate school, uh, where I, I uh, uh, went to study English literature, very much uh, of a traditional uh, sort, ended up studying Romanticism and Modernism, uh, was uh, contemplating a dissertation on William Wordsworth and D.H. Lawrence, and uh, eventually, Lawrence decided uh, he was going to run the dissertation. So, uh, I uh, but there's some oddities about Lawrence that that had some germs of my future development. He had a, 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 
I think, uh, because of marrying the redoubtable Frida von Richthofen, he got exposed to romantic science through her intellectual networks. And so that was kind of a beginning of um, uh, how I got into, uh, laid down some seeds for literature and science. So uh, eventually I, uh, I won't go into the gory details, but I, I wasn't really happening as a modernist, <laughs> as a young as a young professor. Uh, uh, and I heard about this meeting uh, of the Society for Literature Science, and I was a kind of amateur reader of popular science. And I went to this meeting. I met Catherine Hales. Uh, I ended up on a panel with uh, uh, Kate Hales, who's one of the major uh, people in the in this new specialization for decades now, and and everything just started to click for me. So I began by kind of as a, a student and um, fan of Kate Hale's work, uh, and then uh, uh, and her own work uh, came uh, along to a, a certain take on cybernetics and systems in when she took up the topic of the post-human. Uh, uh, and uh, so I kind of spun off of her uh, uh, work at the turn of this millennium, uh, led me back to Fon Furster by some, uh, uh, well, also the work of William Paulson took up Fon Furster explicitly. And so between the two of them, I began to, uh, discover this cybernetic background to chaos theory and complexity theory. And, uh, and then a major uh, milestone for me was going to the um, theory camp, the School for Criticism and Theory at Cornell. So that was the summer of 2000. I, I took a seminar with David Welbury, and it was Bateson and Spencer Brown and Niklas Luhmann's Social Systems, uh, major text of that moment, and and I just I just took the deep dive at that point because everything started falling together. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a lead on being in touch with von Furster. I went out to visit him at his home in Pescadero about a year before he died, uh, put on a recorder and took an interview from him, which I was able to, from which I created a, uh, a transcript that was later published in the volume I did with Mark Hansen called Emergence and Embodiment. And that's, that's the lead item in that, in that volume. So, uh, I, uh, I guess, and then the other kind of from the literary side, it was actually Hales who was already uh, thinking about narrative from the side of chaos theory. Uh, uh, and so I just began reading narratology and finding, uh, and, and around the same time, I started reading Laws of Form. <laughs> and uh, although, of course, I had no idea if I understood it uh, at all, but the, but I could I could kind of 
take its diagrams that that's that's what's that's sort of the deep background of this book called neo cybernetics and narrative is the is the way that i found to use the the kind of diagrammatics of observation that you get from laws of form as a way of thinking about narrative attitudes which is to say the uh the 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 location of the narrative observer as either inside the form which would be the story world or outside the form uh which would be the position of the third person or what uh uh, uh i use the term the authorial narrator uh and 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 so that that was a kind of uh formalistic uh, uh, project that was driven from form theory and observation theory as I was then learning that from from the line between what so what I call neo cybernetics just to touch on that is uh, Luman's neologism for the line of second order cybernetics that leads to his social systems theory so so that's uh that, that's the uh that that's kind of how that term finds itself in there and so what you have in that line from von furster through maturan and varela through the theory of autopoiesis uh as they relate that to a uh, a discourse of cognition as Luhmann then appropriates autopoiesis uh, as a uh, and and extends it beyond the biological instance to psychic and social systems, but all within uh, a, a, a kind of general theory of observation and form. So that's what really got me uh, excited in in the previous decade. And and then to just to kind of finish that story up, uh, I I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship at IKKM at the Bauhaus University Weimar, uh, which is a, a research uh, uh, project in media theory uh, uh, and philosophy. Uh, and so I did a lot of the writing for neo-cybernetics and narrative. Uh, in 2010-11, as I was had that wonderful free time to think and bounce my ideas off the people in Weimar, um, so so that's uh, that's a there you go. It's <laughs> a world. It's a world. A world. Yes, definitely. And it's yeah you you the, the the reading list you gave yourself was obviously a uh, a monumental one and uh, it reminds me of my own sort of once you once you have your sort of conversion moment <laughs> into the right. field of second order yes. systems theory and cybernetics you start grabbing all those titles and 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 sort of grappling with them sometimes in isolation and sometimes with some others you can talk to but uh, yeah I. I my own experiences of reading laws of form are racing back to me as you describe your own uh, experience with that. Um, so a couple of questions, just following up on what you've just told us. Um, what is it, um, 
because you're, I mean, you mentioned um, that Catherine Hales has also talked about narrative, but you are fairly unique as someone bringing um, this type of, of thinking into a world of literary analysis and textual analysis and so much more because the work is just so, so interdisciplinary. Um, but um, what, what, what attracted you to it in the sense of what was missing for you from other ways of approaching narrative or, or approaching mm. textual analysis that this suddenly you went, Oh my God, this is the thing that we, that we're missing. Well, this is, this is going to fill a gap. I, I, I don't think it, it presented itself to me in quite that way. I mean, I, my sense of my own trajectory is that it's, it's just been a, a, a series of serendipitous connections uh, and uh, and in a way, I, I mean, out here at Texas Tech, which people might not know is not 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 a technological college, but a sort of full blown regional university. But uh, on the other hand, we're not an Ivy League university. But for me, it worked out really well because although I was hired to teach Romanticism. Uh, 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 back way back in the day, uh, uh, I and I got tenure kind of working my traditional canonical uh specialization, but but very soon after getting tenure, the literature and science thing uh began to fall into place, and I just really had freedom to go where my interests led me. And so they just kind of led me right on out of my standard preparation. Uh, uh, but, mm-hmm. but one topic that, that I brought out of that uh, earlier interest is sort of uh, embodied in my first book, which is called Allegories of Writing, and it's uh, uh, the subject of metamorphosis. And gradually what I, what I kind of, cobbled together was uh, 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 centered on the topic of allegory. So this is a perfectly traditional, classical, literary topos, right? But allegory, as it turns out, is this kind of systematization of the meaning structures of a text, right? There's a, there's a sort of pervasive subtext. Uh, and so... I think so when when uh, of course systems theory is uh, uh, something else again, but it has a theory of meaning uh, in Luhmann's uh, development, specifically uh, the uh, coming out of Husserl and uh, uh, tying to the the sort of horizon uh, of uh, uh, of uh, the uh, indication <laughs> of, of meaning inside right. the form and, and and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I wasn't really, it wasn't that I felt that there was something lacking that I needed to fill up. It was just this sort of unfolding of new ways of pushing the kinds of thinking that I was doing into, into further formations. And it just kind of started right. to roll, roll along. <laughs> Uh, but then once, right, once right, you get yeah. to, but then once you're in cybernetics and systems theory, you realize this is like, this is a meta theory of 
just about anything. I mean, uh, or if you take it as a basic epistemology, which I, I do, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you, you're good to go mm-hmm. uh, anywhere you yeah. want to take yeah. it. Yeah, that's great. That's very well said. Um, so, and and your use of the term uh, neo-cybernetics as opposed to second-order cybernetics, I, I'm what I'm picking up is that that word is specifically, uh, and one of the things it's maybe doing is to make sure that it specifically includes the extension of autopoiesis to social systems via Lumen uh, in the way that some second-order cyberneticians to this day still don't quite buy. So that neo, the, the term neo-cybernetics is, rather than second-order cybernetics, is saying this this is this is part of the package that you're dealing with here. Is this is this extension of autopoiesis to social systems? Is that is that true? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I have so I uh, this volume that I mentioned called Emergence and Embodiment. The subtitle is New Essays in Second Order Systems Theory, and I remember some conversations with Soren Breer, who was sort of wondering if if. Uh, he sort of questioned that usage uh, when I proposed it. I guess in, in some conversation we had, and and I uh, and I, I basically explained that well, it's because I want I, I want to carry the conversation to Lumon, but I want to bring it precisely out of the 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 nexus of von Furster, Matron, and Varela, and and uh, realizing that uh, the uh, Matron and Varela themselves were leery uh, to some extent of, of of what Lumon did with their with their 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 baby, their their concept yeah. of autopoiesis. You know, I talked to Fon Furster about that very thing when I interviewed him because that the, the I had already gathered that there was a kind of divide uh, uh, between the the sort of the Varelans. Uh, uh, and Matron as well was, uh, not, uh, I, he had his own way of getting beyond the biological instance, but it wasn't, uh, but I, I just thought Lumon, uh, uh, had, had worked out the way to make that conceptual shift, uh, 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 operate at a literal level. Uh, by the redefinition of the uh, of the uh, of the elements of the autopoietic right. process, right? So uh, as meaning events, basically, as opposed to some molecular, uh, chemical, biochemical, <laughs> uh, yeah. metabolic process. That so uh, and so, it's in his text that he just kind of, I mean, without any particular fanfare, he just. Uses he drops the term neo cybernetics in as the name he puts on what he's doing. So yeah. for me, it, it's just a, a shorter. It, it's sort of a less, uh, 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 you know, it's a simpler way to say second order systems theory, which for me is the line that begins with von Furster's uh, theories of the observer, uh, and then goes directly to autopoiesis as cognition and then extends to autopoiesis as, uh, so, uh, as, uh, also, uh, operating at what I call the metabiotic level to get it, 
beyond the biological instance of cellular autopoiesis, which, of course, is a perfectly important part of the theory as well. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but once you get it into meaning systems, uh, then, then you're good to go for the literary, for textual literary application uh, at, uh, and you can then think about uh, uh, narrative as, and not as a system, which I think I, I try to make clear, a narrative in and of itself is not a system. It's a highly complex structure toward which a system must be brought, the observing system that constituted by the reader's consciousness of the text. Uh, that's how you get the system into it. But at the same time, of course, the uh, as, a, as a representational, as a semantic structure, uh, you're, you're moving back and forth between structure and system uh, all the yeah. time. So narrative yeah. and systems then is, is uh, narrative remains sort of, this is the uh, sort of the, the infrastructure of structure <laughs> <laughs> upon which then systemic interest uh, operates uh, in its observational capacity to make some sense of what's going on with the structure. So that's kind Terrific. of how it, yeah. how it fits. That's together. fantastic, and 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 your inclusion of Lumen is essential. And f the angle for, f that I pursue my own work is, and why your work is just so compelling to me is is uh, trying to use the same some of the same um, mechanisms in terms of theater and film, which is is the domain that I come at this from. And the inclusion of Lumen is, is kind of essential uh, for doing that. So um, I think it's really helpful that you've created a sort of a, another sort of set of brackets around neo-cybernetics for those who do want to bring Lumen along. And I've actually had a few emails from folks since this podcast began saying, is this a place where we're finally going to get to talk about Lumen? Because no one wants to talk about Lumen. So <laughs> this one's for those folks who- uh, Fine with me. <laughs> yeah. So this is great. So this takes us nicely into neo-cybernetics and narrative. So can you just say um, just a brief overview, because I know it's incredibly dense and, and wide ranging. At the same time, um, some of the key elements of neo cybernetics that um, that then we will bring to um, a, a, a study of narrative that you think are the key ones. You mentioned some things about the observer. There's also uh, a notion of cognition, which is different than some uh, traditional ideas about cognition. So those are those are two things. Um, sorry, are you still there? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll have to edit that out. I just did something weird with my computer. I'll have to take that out. Um, okay, here we go again. So can you um, just give us a little overview of uh, some of the key components and conceptual um, framework of neo-cybernetics that is important to your project of, of looking at narrative? Well, I start with the sign. Uh, I start at, at the semiotic level, uh, which grounds, a, you know, which which essentially grounds the the project in the the structural moment, right? Uh, of uh, uh, the scholarship of narrative uh, uh, coming through the twentieth century. I uh, and so I coined this term called semiolepsis. Uh, which I, I don't know that it's taken off like a rocket, but it, it has to do with the idea that that uh, uh, where I want to make this basic 
distinction, of course, between, I mean, the sign does not observe itself. And sometimes when you read semiotics and you don't have a discourse that's kind of conceptualized, the observer in relation to the object, you know, it's, uh, you, you kind of get a sense that signs read themselves. And I want to say, well, not exactly. Uh, I mean, or that's a metaphor you can ply, but, but, but once, uh, 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 so the observer has to be an originary moment uh, of motivation for making the sign do something. But, but, but once you get those two, you bring those two together in this kind of originary act of reading as observation, the sign, the sign now leaps uh, uh, into uh, the state of denotation or, or meaning production. And, and I was struck by a, a kind of allegory of signification in which uh, that if, if we think about the kind of the movement of signs in the realm of meaning, it's like metempsychosis, which uh, you'll recall means the transmigration of the soul from one body to another. And if you just go back into Western literature, uh, uh, and if you go back especially into the literature, the classical literature of metamorphosis, uh, this is one basic uh, uh, event structure, uh, the, that a metamorphosis is kind of the, uh, uh, the movement of, of the soul from one body to another. That could happen like in <laughs> either... Uh, in the life of of a like in the Golden Ass, which is one of my touchstone texts from classical literature, Lucius is transformed into an ass and then back into a human. Or if we just think of, uh, 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 but then when you get Ovid finally bringing in the, the figure of Pythagoras in the midst of the metamorphoses, then you have this kind of Pythagorean idea of the the. Uh, sort of continuous metamorphosis as the transposition or the leaping of the soul uh, from one vehicle, right? From one signifier to another, you might say. So uh, mm -hmm. this, uh, that's the kind of, uh, in, in this work specifically, I, I had a, I worked these ideas out as, because in fact, that was the 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 annual theme at IKKM the year I was there was uh, uh, signs and things so I had this impetus to just kind mm. of work on this uh, uh, semiotic level uh, of uh, of interest uh, which then uh, but at the same time to uh, uh, frame it in terms of the, the the sort of the exterior of the structure, which is which is the 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 dynamism that the observer brings to the situation of making meaning from sign structures. So so to me, I mean, mm -hmm. I I consider that that's sort of like a neo cybernetic 
observation of the line from semiotics to narrative. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. The right. uh, uh, beyond that, to me, uh, then then I kind of move out. I touch on uh, information communication. So I've got kind of I'd say readings and critiques of information. So what was kind of crucial for me was seeing the way that von Furster himself develops from an information theorist, which of course all cyberneticists were information theorists at the get-go because the two... Right, of the Shannon Shannon Weaver variety as the two theories developed side by side to the point that they seem to merge together and, and many folks think it's it's the same thing, but in fact, it's two separate bodies of theory. And what gradually, uh, what von Furster gradually works out is the limitation of information as a as a comprehensive concept. So information is kind of like the sign sitting there with no observer. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he famously said. Von Furster famously said there was no information right, in a library. Right, or he just said, uh, uh, right. uh, if I can remember <laughs> yeah. the exact line, he says, uh, uh, the environment contains no information. <laughs> the environment is as it yes, is. it is as it is. And, and, yeah. and, and, how, and yeah. we go, but yeah. wait, the environment's supposed to be full of information down to its atomic structure. And it's, well, that's because... You observe it in the mode of information, and you make the distinctions that that then around which informatic uh, 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 formations crystallize. You could say, uh, but it's just not sitting there waiting for you to process it. You're, you know, you constitute it, and then you process it. So that's a constructivist way of right. Of getting at it, so so to me, neo cybernetics. Then you could also say is about moving beyond the informatic orientation of, generally speaking, first order cybernetics. Uh, communication. Right. Oh, go ahead. Can you say a little bit? I was just gonna. No, no, so I was go thinking ahead. of my second chapter, which then takes up information and communication and treats these topics from from the neo-cybernetic point of view uh yeah uh, please go ahead i uh the uh well the main thing is uh i mean it's pretty much strictly lumanian (laughs) or or just an application of uh Mm -hmm. of uh the uh uh the social systems theory as as centered directly on the autopoiesis of communication, uh, uh, and uh, but communication theory itself sometimes lingers in that informatic uh, complexion uh, as uh, and so you get transmission models. So if you're in the informatic complexion of thought then communication is transmission. In other words, it's pre-constituted and you just put it in the transmitters. It goes to the receivers. It gets decoded in some kind of automatic way. And and so you get this sort of, it's already ontologized. That's what Luhmann would say. I mean, and that's the problem, that that information is taken as constituting an ontology Mm -hmm. before anyone decodes it. And, or you just, 
but in fact it's mm-hmm. it's constituted uh, uh, the well the the apparatus itself is is part of the infrastructure but but nevertheless the the um, uh, uh, the emergence of meaning uh, is uh, uh, bound up in in this in these processes of selection, which Luhmann has laid out, you know, in great detail, and as this tripartite uh, series of of selections, of which information, right, is one of the right information, utterance, and understanding. That's the Luhmannian triad of communication. So information's there, but it's just the 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 first piece of the process uh and it's not information until selected indicated by by the observer yeah yeah can you say something about the trace because that's a really important notion in the book and also uh there seems to be a place a point at which the trace becomes the sign sure (laughs) uh but that the trace uh and you you give this example of (laughs) of of a scratch on a rock and it could have been done by uh, uh, as an act of agency of a of a of a sentient creature scratching a rock and making a mark, or it could have been you know a shard flying off from an asteroid collision. But it leaves a trace, and then at some point the trace is going to become a sign. Sure. So can you well, tell that us a was a kind of uh, oh, oh, just uh, uh, what I was thinking about was Calvino. Calvino has these wonderful uh, stories in a collection called Cosme Comics. And he has a, one of these stories is called A Sign in Space. And, and it's, uh, uh, and it's often, it's other readers of Calvino have noted the, the resonances with uh, Spencer Brown's mark of distinction. So, uh, and then you've got Derrida. So the idea of the trace is Derridian, uh, or at least for me, in in bringing that idea forward. That that comes out of Derrida's discourse of these sort of originary marks that that also, I mean, that are also, I mean, can be aligned with Spencer Brown. But I I don't know that that's many people have have noted that. But it, so it's like. The idea of an originary structure that that uh, may either have uh, be the product of a uh, of an act of volition or an, uh, uh, that is a uh, a meaning event or uh, an offer. Okay. In other words, if 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 the scratch on the rock was just this happenstance uh, remnant of of a, a shard of an asteroid running across a piece of granite uh uh well i mean you can still it's still the 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 trace becomes a sign of that inhuman or pre or or just kind of cosmological event uh the go ahead and both Both versions you just Absolutely. mentioned to our stories words, too, right? So I think I, it's stories. been a while since I've read right? my own book, but but the idea is that narrative is already there, kind of folded yeah. up yeah. in the, in the scratch on the rock, in the trace, even whether it's yeah. a happenstance, cosmological, random 
event or 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 whether some uh sentient being decided uh i'm gonna you know this is some prehistoric graffiti where i was here <laughs> here's my scratch and 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 uh, and then it's just left as a remnant of an intention right. to to signify presence of or whatever it might be but but you could tell the story at a certain point it doesn't matter which story you've got whether just the the random cosmological event or the volitional uh, intention to mean uh the trace becomes a sign as soon as it's uh observed as a sign <laughs> and then a story inevitably starts to unfold from that moment so now when we turn to literary texts um are should we think of a literary text as a as a sort of structure of traces that are then become no, signs I, in the act of the observe observation performed by the reader do they, well, is, do they it, exist as traces first or is, I, is that a wrong is that the wrong question of the trace time? began as this kind of it was a, a kind of, I thought of it as sort of playful effort to create a mythos around the sign. So the mythos, so the mythos of mm. the sign would go back to this pre-semiotic moment of the trace where something happens and, and, and some, a moment of inscription occurs, okay? Uh, no, I and so I think one can, and that mythos mm -hmm. is something one could use to think about these, to take our the contemplation of these things back to these originary moments. But just for to to open up a novel or a, a dramatic work or you know some some narrative artifact in in the medium of of uh words uh uh i you don't necessarily need to <laughs> contemplate the trace you could just start with the uh the you know the semiotic register and start with the, the text and its discourse and 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 uh uh, mm -hmm. uh uh and for me now so i mean if we're talking about a prose narrative then the narrator you're going to have a narrator and the narrator is an observer function is, is uh, an observer function rendered in the semiotic medium of, uh, of, of, of the words of the text. Right. And so you, you uh, examine how, how observation is constituted and then unfolded uh, across the, and so that works the, I, I've been teaching these classes a semester where, where this is just the basic lesson. And it's, it, it's not even systems theoretical. This is narratological, the discourse story distinction, right? It's basically the distinction between the signifier and the signified coming out of semiotics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as applied to the narrative text. Uh, so you've got a narrative signifier, and that's the discourse. Uh, and then the narrative signified is the story. So you've got the manner of the telling, and then you've got the tale told. Uh, and, and so there's your basic, 
And just getting sophomores and juniors to grok that basic analytical distinction takes me half a semester sometimes. I mean, some of them get it and go, wow, you know, and and, and for others, it's right. just, right. why should I, I just want to, you know, it kind of generally speaking, people just want the story. Give me the story, you know, and I say, no, 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 back it up. You don't have to go back to the trace, but let's mm-hmm. at least take it back mm-hmm. to the mode of the discourse. So the discourse will constitute an observer. Uh, 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 and this is pretty explicit mm-hmm. in narrative, uh, in, in prose narrative, right? Because the narrator then delegates focalization to a, a character who may also narrate, who may uh, then tell what they observe uh, or your authorial narrator outside the story world gazes in uh, to uh, uh, to constitute the story world, uh, to dive into the minds of the characters that are moving across it. And, and so... So this is all kind of applied observation theory. And then it's actually in my previous book. I don't know if you looked at post-human metamorphosis, narrative and systems. So in that in that text, I actually I, I use yes. the Spencer Brown formalism yes. to work through the basic narrative attitudes, which are the observational attitudes, the kinds of the way the the narrator as observer can be positioned relative to the to the story world under observation. So I that's where I kind of uh, uh, diagram these narrative instances uh, explicitly. And then in neo cybernetics and narrative, by the time I write that, I come back to Spencer Brown. But by then, I've had this wonderful graduate student who who was a refugee from an engineer. He was an engineer, and he had the math background to really understand Spencer Brown. So I got him to teach me how to read how to read Spencer Brown, like you know, in a deep dive. Uh, oh, fabulous! <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid he's he's out. Uh, Can you send him to UBC uh, uh, now that you're done with him? Can you send him up to Canada uh, for me? <laughs> at, at a, uh, I think yeah. he's at a community college outside of Washington D.C. now. Last I heard, and it, yeah. So, but that was the difference. So, in neo cybernetics and narrative, when I got back well, to Spencer to Brown, him. I really knew how to tackle yeah. Chapter Eleven, the the fearful Chapter Eleven, where where. Uh, the uh, uh, where self-reference uh, enters the form. Uh, <laughs> so, no, it's not really. <laughs> right. It's too complicated. Do you want to tell us a little I'm bit about sure that I'm... right now? <laughs> <laughs> not really. <laughs> okay, let's okay. turn to... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, we don't have... Yeah, I know it's uh, it's yeah. We'll save it for another time. L- let's talk a bit about some of the some of the actual texts that you um, engage with through a, a neo cybernetic lens. Um, so one of the ones that I most get most excited about is is Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Sure. Um, so can you say a bit about what drew you to that as a particular work to examine as a kind of case study in this book, and what and what viewing it from a neo cybernetic perspective. Um, can open up for us. Well, I, I really 
only do a kind of quick down and dirty treatment of its opening passage. Uh, uh, and I, uh, so in, in my former, I mean, sometimes I'm a scholar of 20th century British literature. They don't really do my scholarship there anymore, but I was teaching grad classes on, uh, the, the modernist novel. So, so I just, I'd been working on that. I'd been teaching that novel. So as I was developing in the same period that I was working out the, these narrative applications of systems theory. So, so it just struck me that, and so what you've got there is, is this, uh, really dynamic, uh, uh, immediate, uh, introduction of free indirect discourse. Okay. Uh, uh, also known as figural narration in, in, uh, Stanzel's, uh, so the, this German narrative theorist named Stanzel, who, whose work I like very much, uh, it's, it's kind of proto systematic, uh, uh, but, but more generally, uh, uh, but if you get your narratology from Gerard Jeanette, it'll just be called free indirect discourse. So this is a narrative situation where you've got an authorial narrator, an external narrator, uh, uh, who, who's basically orchestrating the, the movement of observation uh, between the level, the narrator's level outside the story world and the minds of the characters inside the story world. So uh, uh, I uh, I just found that that opening passage of uh, of the novel is so so immediately uh, rich in the the uh, not just that these devices of the these kinds of uh, uh, and they're not I mean these devices aren't modern modernistic I mean uh, 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 they'd been seen. Uh, but but they kind of uh, uh, get to a sort of reach a threshold of intensity in the modernist novel, you could say. Uh, so uh, so I uh, uh, look at how the way that novel opens is kind of a a, a, a primer in if you attend to it carefully to kind of mark. Uh, you can kind of mark the passage with, you know, kind of in a Spencer Brownian sense of of of, of eliciting the the thresholds where where these kind of boundaries of indication are crossed one way or the other, moving back and forth between the 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 exterior of the story world and the interior of the story world. But uh, then I leave it at that and move on to something else. Uh, but uh, you can certainly then, and, and what we would do in my class then is, is just then proceed on through the novel and study it for its mobilization of this sort of intensification of, uh, of uh, writerly uh, 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 operations of uh, 
uh, that really exercise the the range of narrative possibilities uh, uh, to the extent that we get right. So we get novels sort of observing them. So we're moving towards what what is called postmodernism, where the self-reflexive arc of these devices becomes explicit or, or, or we reach this further threshold where narrative self-reference becomes a device in itself. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to mention Mrs. Dalloway in the first place is because uh, in, in addition to rereading your book, I've been re-listening to uh, an audiobook version of Mrs. Dalloway, which is an even more <laughs> or a different kind of extraordinary experience uh, than simply reading it because in terms of this kind of um, simulepsis that's going on and jumping uh, you know, between various observers, uh, the power of Virginia Woolf's ability to l- literally make us feel as if we're in the head of another observer the distinctions drawn, not just about what is currently being observed, but her, the character's reflections of the past. You've got them all thinking about their time at Burton and Peter Walsh is thinking about India. And um, so what's happening for us as an observer, uh, a second order observer in those moments? Is there a sort of neo-cybernetic way to talk about what makes Wolf such an exemplar of a particular type of, of narratology? The, the particular level of dynamism with which she shifts, that, that you become attuned to the, 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 this kind of rapid fire, uh, 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 you're trained to be on your toes to, uh, as, you, as you just brought out, not just the shifting, the, the, the variable focalization that we would call it in straight narrative terminology as we go into one mind and then out of that mind into another mind that might just be there in the same room at the same moment. But all of the uh, analepses, right, uh, which uh, the technical term for flashbacks, then uh, and that uh, I'm reminded that's also happening right there in the opening passages that not only does Mrs. Dalloway come to the, to the door and uh, throw the doors open and, and gather in the morning, but immediately her, her interior life, her, her, her thoughts go back to uh, 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 this previous moment of a kind of similar uh uh, uh, breaking into the uh, rising day, uh, and, and so uh, the the I think the the only thing what I would call neo cybernetic in the manner of this kind of attention to the narrative is sort of that how you can uh, kind of refine that process of narrative observation with the uh, through. Uh, a, a sense of how Spencer Brown's form theory works, right? I, so that you have these thresholds, you have these, the, you can mark the, the, the moments of crossing, right? Uh, uh, and, and each cross, right? Which is one of your basic, <laughs> when you're in, when you're working with the form, that's one of the primary operations right is crossing the the mark the line of indication or crossing the boundaries 
that define one space or or one meaning or another. And 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 so I think uh, that's pretty much what I'd say is that you've got you kind of you have this additional methodology that you can bring to kind of systematize your uh the 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 kind of narrative of your observation of the narrative mm. and the crossing so there's a self go ahead right i mean and there's uh, and and since we're in second order thinking the the, the sort of the self referentiality the recursiveness of these processes is kind of foregrounded by by, by that methodological uh 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 sort of situation or, or or conceptual framing that you're working through mm. and and sh- and wolf as the author never gives us uh, an authorial voice that says this is a world outside of the constructivist framework there that that all we get are these crossings from one uh, one uh, or organizationally closed consciousness to another. There is no access to the freestanding, quote unquote, real world outside of the mediated descriptions of each of the characters, in a sense. So, and yet one of the yes, that sorry, go ahead. I, I, I agree with that, and so that's distinctive to her, uh, her, her uh, discretion uh, uh, in. So that that her authorial narrator is consistently covert, and everything is figural, right? So we really remain deeply embedded in the story. We're we're not brought out to a comprehensive observation. Other right, I mean, for instance, I was just teaching Brave New World. It's not really my favorite novel, but but there you've got this overt narrator who's also. Uh, takes you into the minds of characters, but then steps out to ridicule them <laughs> just consistently because of course the brave new world is, is so screwed up. Uh, and, and we're not allowed to forget that this is a dystopian nightmare that, that we've been brought into, but Wolf doesn't, I mean, in a way that's, that's kind of the lesser art of Aldous Huxley right at that point. Although it, it's it's cool enough in its own right, but but Wolf's you know her kind of supreme artistry is is that what we think of as that modernist uh, 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 kind of covertness. The author doesn't divulge themselves, and the author then does not take up the position of a kind of privileged observer who has the last word on how what right. it's really right. like, right? right? You know, right? Creates a narrator that doesn't divulge itself, yeah, uh, in working that out. And at the same time, one can't help but thinking as you as you make these leaps to the consciousness, various consciousnesses of the of the characters, that they seem so. They seem so real. They seem so vivid, and I certainly get the sense that I've known these people. And of course, the uh, second order systems theory—you're in this place where uh, any kind of access to some kind of mind independent tr- truth is 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 not on the table. And yet, she seems to create something that, for the reader, one experiences as as true. And so uh, that takes me to the idea of the eigenform. Um, 
is is she just particularly adept at at generating uh, a, a set of eigenforms? And for listeners who are not familiar with that term, this idea of of fixed points of meaning that are generated in in the case of of humans through neurophysiological means, but that what we agree on as the real world is this shared set of eigenforms. And again, we need another hour to unpack that at least. But uh, that I just because that to me is one of the great paradoxes of Wolf is that, and especially looking at it from a neo cybernetic perspective, is like okay, I'm I'm not committed to an uh, to a, a mind independent ontology yet. Damn it, this just feels like she's telling the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, I. You that's a way of getting at her her consummate greatness as a novelist. But more generally, that's why we read novels, because they allow uh, and to the extent of a writer who could just work this illusion of. of of revelation of other minds, uh, we get out of the uh, what otherwise epistemologically we have to uh, 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 accept. I think uh, as the, the 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 closure, right? The 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 actual uh, uh, real life closure of the autopoietic system, which in this case would be my mind or your mind. Uh, Thank God we have this thing called communication (laughs) uh, by which we mutually reconstruct what we take the other person to mean, as for instance, we're doing right now in this conversation. But when you read a book like Mrs. Dalloway, I mean, that's why it's, it's just really so, that's the mark of its greatness it, because as, as even though we shift rapidly from mind to mind as we get the feel for this world and the feel for these people we just we just slip right into them and and it and and, and so the bonus of pleasure we get from that experience is is partly because it's completely impossible unless telepathy is real which it isn't <laughs> As near as my experience would, uh, so that's of course another topic I take up in neo cybernetics and narrative, uh, uh, because it's so interesting that, but in the in the medium of prose fiction, telepathy is is absolutely uh, j- you just have to snap your fingers and and kind of nuance the device, uh, you transfer the. The, the conventional uh, 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 capability of an authorial narrator to go into the mind of a character, and you just put that ability into the mind of a character, and you've got a telepathic character. Man, I, and I just I just finished teaching Star Maker by Olaf Stapledon. Mm-hmm. Do you know this no, novel? I know of it, but no, I haven't read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows of it, <laughs> right. but few people have read it. <laughs> kind of like Laws and of I just <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it's sort of it takes. Uh, it's just absolutely full of telepathy. Uh, you've probably read Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, maybe not, but a long time back, right? But where where uh, you've got uh, so science fiction 
uh, often sort of in its fantastical mode will just bring telepathy. I mean, that's kind of the the signifier of futurity or higher mental evolution or some such thing is that all of a sudden we're telepathic and the closure of consciousness, you know, uh, falls away and, and, uh, and that brings its own set of problems, which is thereby hangs many a tale, but, but here in what we think of the, 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 the depiction of the realistic world uh, or the, the world that, does not transgress the closures uh, 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 in reality. Uh, narrative, the, the pleasure of narrative is that it, it, it simulates that experience that we can't have. Right, and fulfills a desire yeah, for that kind right. of... Right, it fulfills... So, does, right. so as a writer, I mean, I'm asking you to just speculate wildly here and sort of just riffing on these themes, but I just this I find this conversation so stimulating that is a great writer like Wolf because then one one goes well what separates Virginia Wolf it seems like an almost quasi telepathic ability to imagine what it must be like to be inside other minds because those other minds seem to make so much sense to us as what an, an other mind might be like and in a sense she could only do that by being an astute observer of other people in a kind of black box sort of method, right? It's like I I watch people, I see what stimulus they are are, you know, I see what goes in and I see what comes out in terms of their behavior and I construct a, an inner world and then a third party reads that ex- explanation of that inner world and goes, that seems plausible. I mean, it all just shouldn't be possible in this world of organizational closure and yet it takes place. In in it takes place in the story world. Sure. I, I mean, I I can't I I don't have the formula for that genius. Uh, uh, I uh, but but we can sure appreciate uh, uh, the the aesthetic experience that 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 it 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 brings us. Uh, the eigen form. I, I mean, maybe I haven't tried this, but there might. If you took a kind of microanalysis to her prose, you might be able to trace the eigenforms that I mean, which would be these uh, I, I think these kind of recursive uh, uh, the sort of some kind of recursive process that's instantiated in in the semiotics of the. Of, of the discourse that 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 coalesce right to the that stabilize the sense of the uh, of the livingness uh, right or, or the the inner reality of the personhood that's being constituted by the text of this novel I I don't know I, yes well you asked me to be wildly speculative I mean may, maybe one could could actually discern those patterns. Uh, I never took it that kind of microscopically down in. <laughs> Maybe Pask's uh, uh, conversation theory and creating entailment meshes for the characters and revealing them as what he would call the P individual, the psychological individual, yeah. the constellation of ideas, concepts that form a kind of coherent whole that is the psychological individual. But yeah, a project for <laughs> yeah. a really ambitious grad A project student. for... There you go. Yeah. yeah. 
There's a dissertation in the making. That's right. Sure. Let's just turn quickly, and we're we're almost at the end of our time. You've been very generous with your time, but I I want to ask about um, another uh, steering wildly away from Virginia Woolf to uh, the James Cameron film Avatar. Um, and I know you sure. and much of your scholarship uh, in recent years and going back a while, you've been interested in in Gaia theory, and uh, obviously there's all kinds of um, metempsychosis uh, <laughs> going on in Avatar and other things. So Absolutely. what uh, what drew you to to looking at that film and uh, and how it contributes to the larger project of the book? Right. Well, I when I came to uh, the uh, IKKM uh, uh, in fall of 2010, I uh, immediately had to give a lecture. I, I sort of, I ended up being the kickoff lecture of their fall series. And, and so, but I knew I, uh, I, I had this lecture gig and I needed something cool to, uh, you know, to do. And I, I, I think I briefly tell the story in, in the chapter where I was flying to a conference in uh, Riga, Latvia, mm-hmm. on a Russian airliner from JFK, and, and Avatar came on the screen, and, and, and I hadn't seen it before. And, and so I watched Avatar in this little tiny uh, you know, backseat screen on an airliner, but I immediately, it just, it just, as you say, it, it's kind of, it's technologized metempsychosis. It's about the, it's about, uh, this apparatus, this system, right? This technological system, which is the avatar system. And the guy gets in the link booth and then his mind shoots into this drone organism uh and and the the avatar comes to life in the in the world of the of the metakaya and so i my mind just started spinning around because i saw uh, uh i just thought uh i had i could really sink my teeth into the uh the the infrastructure of the story world, right? It, not not just sort of the story of the characters, but then all of the paradoxes, the two-sided form, right? Mm-hmm. That is the avatar mind. And so I just, uh, right, the two-sided form being this kind of Spencer Brownian concept of, of being inside and outside the form at the same time. And, and, and so the main character kind of is tumbles into being inside and outside the story world at the same time. And, <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I just, I, I bought, you know, I bought a DVD and then I just started studying the movie like on, on the screen and, 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 uh, and, and this, you know, and, and came up with this. Uh, so that at, at that level, it was kind of a uh, it, it's it's a cybernetic science fiction, you mm-hmm. know, inside and out. It just mm-hmm. not necessarily second order, but it's really more first order cybernetics. But still, you've got these transmission apparatuses. But what's being sent is not messages, but 
but consciousnesses. Mm-hmm. So and a control a controlling consciousness, yeah, right? They right, they need to right. control these avatars. They're exactly. steering them, literally. Yeah. Right. You get so it's control theory, and then you get all the 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 political colonial you know references or resonances of of this of, of the 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 colonial exploiters coming into the native indigenous world and so forth. And that's kind of the level of the more standard discussion of the movie takes up those cowboys and Indians tropes. Uh, uh, But so I, I, my dive was to go into it at the level of, of what's actually being imagined. If we think that there, it could possibly be the case that such a system Right. Could be could be constructed when, in fact, what's happening could only happen in a story. In other words, that same metempsychosis of uh, uh, that narrative can produce is being now you've just got this kind of technological infrastructure for that. Now, the Gaia, the Gaia connection comes out of Bruno Latour because he he wrote about that movie a couple of years prior to uh, uh, and, and and Latour was already kind of meditating on Lovelock and Gaia theory, and, and you have this planetary element, uh, but you have this kind of it's more the the uh, the 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 sense of the indigenous peoples as having this this connectedness to their home planet, right? That we've lost. Uh, as being being the these rapacious uh, modern humans who just tromp over the world instead of feeling a connection with it. Of course, it takes that down into the fact that these beings have have neural connectors. Like, wouldn't that be great if if we could do this interview just by putting our neural connectors together? So they just plug into their world. That's not really Gaia theory. <laughs> That's a part of the problem with actual Gaia theory is actually discovering that we've got a planet that that's in fact systemically at least that's the theory is that that the the planet the the what we now call the Earth system uh, 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 out of the Earth system emerges these feedback loops that actually have regulative uh, effects over for instance just the 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 level of oxygen uh, in the atmosphere uh, maintained at within certain thresholds that that's not just a happenstance deal. I I mean, so, so, you know, the actual Gaia discourse uh, isn't, uh, I mean, you know, what I think of as the, you know, the, the true Gaia discourse, which is the scientific hypothetical, uh, writings of James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis uh, doesn't trip out, uh, you know, beyond uh, beyond operational closures. But of course, in the movie Avatar, well, just like narrative, generally speaking, it's going to find a way to transgress operational closures because that's what narrative does. Uh, and so they all like uh, at some point they can plug into each other or they plug into or, or they when they ride those those winged creatures. Right. They they make the, the bond 
you must make the bond <laughs> and they and they plug into each other and then the mind of of the of, of the uh the indigenous humanoid is now controlling the mind of its of its winged vehicle and so forth and so on so it's all great fun and and it's and and i personally responded powerfully although i have to confess i've never seen the movie in 3d uh <laughs> which uh, which experience is awaiting me but you know but you know in a way that that's kind of bells and whistles that uh that are you know uh, uh above and beyond the uh, the the that that kind of interest in thinking about narrative and systems so, so that's kind of i i i saw avatar and it went my god it's narrative and systems. It's my deal. So I'm going to. Right in the wheelhouse. And it also points to this longed for telepathy that seems to be sponsoring a lot of narrative activity in general is uh, some, some, that desire, that longing, even on a fantastical level to, to break through the operational closure um, on a planetary level, interpersonal level, as in Mrs. Dalloway and, and all the rest. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and the book covers even more ground than this. You talk about some other uh, stuff from both popular culture. You talk about Memento, and you talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, so some more films for the film lovers out there. And then you talk about uh, Latour's Aramis, a truly unique uh, piece of writing. Uh, So, yeah, there's so much in this book, um, and it's just such a rich read and just opens up so many new avenues for us to think about um, in a, in a cross-disciplinary way in terms of narrative and systems and, uh, the planet and, and all kinds of things. So we're all immensely grateful for the fertile mind of its author and uh, looking forward to what comes next. So what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a book on Gaia. <laughs> so, uh, it's not really, uh, so this is not, uh, uh, a literary study or, or even a study. It, it, it's a study of Gaia discourse, uh, uh, mainly. So it's a deep dive into Lovelock and Margulis and then, and their, their, uh, so their most worthy expositors like Bruno Latour, Isabel Stengers, Donna Haraway, uh, Dorian Sagan, uh, and, uh, uh, and then the 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 scientific and cultural context. So the scientific context is NASA, which uh, people don't necessarily realize uh, how that that Lovelock conceived Gaia while working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, as a NASA contractor, uh, and and a lot of the funding in the initial decades for both he and 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 Margulis was. Um, uh, NASA funding, but then you've got the whole Earth catalog. You've got those crazy hippies who rediscover ecology and the fact that we're living on a on a, a, a bounded planet uh, spaceship Earth, and we're getting the first images of the whole Earth seen from space. and And these people had their cybernetic antennae all the way up, thinking about whole systems. Very fascinating connections between Stuart Brand, the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog, and and Heinz von Furster. The amazing uh, uh, review of Laws of Form that that 
Heinz contributes to the Whole Earth Catalog, and and uh, and then which then morphs into Coevolution Quarterly in the mid seventies, and they published the first popular article on the guy hypothesis in 1975. So, so it's kind of about, you've got a mainstream Gaia history that is not that well known. You've got a countercultural Gaia history, but it's not the one where Gaia just kind of wanders off into uh, kind of uh, answering cultural desires uh, uh, as a kind of return of a, of a mother earth. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's part of the story, but that's not really the story I want to tell. I want to tell the 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 kind of the the cybernetic appreciation for what was in fact a cybernetic theory. Uh, Lovelock conceived Gaia as a biological cybernetic system that homeostats the planet to maintain uh, habitable conditions, uh, and, and and that's the. That's the initial form of the hypothesis. And so there's this interaction between the mainstream and the counterculture that is very rich and very, and it's one of the great stories of cybernetic uh, 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 sort of production, sort of the, that Gaia is the product of, of, of cybernetic thinking. I don't think people appreciate that uh, background. And so that's uh, so that's what this, this study is about. <laughs> I can think of no better author to tell that story than uh, Bruce Clark. So uh, we look forward to that very much. And thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. My pleasure. Uh, listeners, get, get a hold of this book because it's uh, it's going to open up whole new avenues of thinking for you. So thank you very much, Bruce. And we hope to talk to you sometime in the not so distant future. Thanks, Tom. Sounds good. I really appreciate it. 